invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Daniel chapter 2. If you don't have one, that's uh, okay. As you come in, there's little little racks back there in the back, and uh, you can grab one then um, in the following weeks, but we're going to put it on the screen for you as well because we want everybody to kind of be able to track with us. And we're going to cover quite a bit of territory in Daniel chapter 2. While you're turning there, I want to kind of set the stage by giving you this something to think about here. Um, people who comment on American culture, American society, both Christian and secular, have said that perhaps the greatest uh, character flaw that befalls us as Americans, in Western culture particularly, uh, is the character flaw of living under the illusion that we are somehow in control. We have control of our lives, we have control of what's happening around us, that we live in control, that we have kind of a God complex, it's called. Um, Christian writers talk about this as well as secular writers. A guy named Neil Postman wrote a book called The Culture of Narcissism. And what that basically is about is that he says, you know, the American culture is the kind of culture that we live in such a way that we believe we are in control of our lives at every moment of our day. We, we have to make our own destiny. We have to look out for number one, all those cliches that we hear, that it's all about us and being in control. Now, the Bible talks about this idea really as kind of, functioning like we're, we're, we are our own God. Now, none of us would say, I feel like I'm God, at least big G God. We might say we're a little G God. Um, but the idea is simply that, that we feel like I'm God in the sense that I'm God of my life. I am in control. I'm the one who's going to have a say. Um, I am autonomous. It's actually a word that um, is thought of as like a value, a, a positive thing in our culture. But the word autonomous means a law unto oneself. It means I am my own God. I make my own calls. I am in control. And it's a very dangerous way to live. People involved in the recovery movement will tell you that the very first thing somebody needs to do on the road to recovery is acknowledge they aren't God and they are not in control and they have to turn their life over to God, to the higher power who is in control. If you believe this theology that the Bible communicates, it says that from the very beginning that's what's been wrong with uh, the, the world around God. The, the thing that caused Satan to fall from being an angel to being a force of evil in the world was he wanted to be like God. He wanted to control his own life and destiny, have power unto himself. The Bible says that that's what caused the fall of humanity, that Adam and Eve wanted to be able to make their own calls. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to be like God. It's a very dangerous way to live. And so as we talk about this this morning, we're going to kind of see how Daniel understood the world and how some other people around him understood the world and, and how we can learn from Daniel to, to look at the world in the right way. But to kind of even the playing field this morning, I want us all to acknowledge that kind of we are not God. We are not in control. And I know it's sometimes difficult to acknowledge that, and so, but it's easier to point that out in other people. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. I'm going to you to turn to your neighbor and tell them you're not God. Go ahead and do that right now. Every service, there's always a couple husbands I can see out there that are a little too excited about this. So you turn to their wives. You're not the boss of me. Um, I ran, ran across this quote this weekend, uh, or this week, um, that says this, the, div- the biggest difference between you and God, you know what it is? God never thinks he's you. <laughs> I like that. Okay, Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. 
In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Okay, I'll give you a little bit of uh, kind of bringing you up to date. Last week we started this series in Daniel. If you weren't here, let me encourage you, I don't do this all the time, but to grab last week's tape or CD on your way out because we did a ton of history and kind of set the stage that will really help you as we go through this whole series. Um, but we, we talked about the idea that Daniel was taken. He was a fair-haired boy. He was a, a rich and grew up in a rich, successful family, had the best education, very influential. He was one of those guys that was going to be the leaders of his world that he lived in. He had a, you know, the world by the string, and all of a sudden, this foreign army comes in, devastates his homeland, and takes him as a slave. So the, the life that he had hoped for, the life he dreamed for, the life that had been laid out for him, suddenly was gone. And he was taken to Babylon. And we talked about the fact that the reality is for every single one of us, that's the way life works sometimes. Every single one of us spends time at certain seasons of our life in Babylon. Babylon is that place where life has not turned out the way we planned, the way we hoped. This week, actually yesterday morning, I spent several hours in Decatur with a family um, that lost a, a baby. They're members of our church. and They went to Decatur to have the child uh, close to family. And... Um, they had carried the child nine months, and everything was going great. And the, literally the day before the baby was supposed to be due, they went in, and the, the baby had died. They don't know why. They don't have a, it had been fine like the day before that. Um, and as I was driving over there in the morning, I was thinking to myself, this is a family who is deep, deep in Babylon. They have baby room. They had clothes. They had all these dreams and hopes. And life hasn't turned out the way they planned. And that's the way it is for all of us. I'm going to show you a map just so you get a sense of where this is. Um, Babylon was the world power at the time. Uh, you can see on the right side of the map, that's where uh, the origins of Babylon are. Actually, they controlled basically every, everything you see on the map. Egypt all, all the way in the Middle East. Um, the Babylon, Babylon, the city, is on the Euphrates River, which is the southern river there uh, coming out of the Persian Gulf. On the other side, uh, where it says the Great Sea, just along the coast, that's where Israel is. And so that's where Daniel's from, and he's been taken as a slave, a foreign country. Um, a couple more slides just to reacquaint you. This is a, an artist's rendition of, based on archaeological records of what um, ancient city of Babylon would have looked like. Euphrates River going through the middle of it, these big temples and things. Next slide. Another picture of uh, one of the main gates, how it would have looked coming into Babylon. Babylon is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had these uh, hanging gardens that were um, manned by, or that were run by these ancient uh, hydraulic water pumps. It was amazing feats of engineering. Uh, next slide. This is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar on a coin that has been excavated uh, by archaeologists. So that's roughly what he would look, look like. He was a stunning guy. Um, but that's where we pick up the story. Daniel's been taken off. He's in Babylon, just like the rest of us. And, uh, and you have this king who can't sleep. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is an absolute, the absolute ruler over an empire that is the world power. He is young. He is in control. He is rich. He's successful. He is, in earthly standards, the most secure person in the world. In fact, in his culture, he's actually viewed as a god. People made sacrifices to him. But he's a god who can't sleep. He's got everything he's always wanted, and he's troubled. Pick up the story in verse 2. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, and magic was a huge part of their culture. They believed in, they were very spiritual people, good, evil, demons, angels, all that kind of stuff. He said to them, I have a, had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. 
Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. Make, kind of make a mental note of that Aramaic thing. I'm going to come back to that later. O king, live forever. Just an aside, how well do you think the people around Nebuchadnezzar did at reminding him that he wasn't a god? O king, live forever. You're eternal. You're immortal. You're, you're going to live forever. Your kingdom will be forever. And so he, it was very easy for him to fall into this mindset. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. That seems very reasonable to me. But if you, um, if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. He's not a very patient guy. This is what happens when you kind of live in a world where you think I'm in control and, and I kind of have a God complex that you want what you want and you want it now and nothing can stand in your way. And that's the way he operated. Verse 7, once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. He's like, I don't want you to scam me. If I tell you the dream... And then you tell me, how am I going to know really you know what it means? So you tell me what I dreamed, and then I'll know you have real insight into this stuff. Um, why is it that power does this to people? Partially, partially because it's for people who are in power, they're kind of treated in, in such a way that life is all about them. When a, a really neat story I heard this week, a funny story. Um, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, former president of our country, uh, had a cabinet meeting, and he asked one of his cabinet members, Bill Moyer, to pray. And he was sitting at the other end of the table, and they be, he began to pray, and LBJ could not hear him. And so in the middle of the prayer, he yells down to Bill Moyer, Speak up, Moyer, I can't hear you. To which Bill Moyer replies, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar lived with this kind of errant view of life. The first view of life that is wrong, but we fall into sometimes, it's the I am God view of life. We think we're in control, we're the man, that I am God. Now you would probably say, I don't think I'm God, I've never thought that. But we fall into thinking that way in, 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 more than we know. And here's an example. Um, one, of the people, one of the ways they say that we can fully discern if we are um, living with this kind of mindset, that I am God, I am in control, is how do you deal with setbacks in life? When you have a setback in life, when you meet a frustrating person, when you're stuck in traffic, when your kid spills something, when you have an irritant at work, when a task you're involved in takes way longer than you thought it should, how do you respond to that? Are you angry, rageful? Do you withdraw, um, frustrated? Do you feel like, I should get this, I deserve this? Uh, you know, um, or do you remind yourself that I'm not God and the world doesn't revolve around me or exist to meet my needs? See, Nebuchadnezzar believes he's God. And so he lives this life of self-absorption uh, and preoccupation. He is all he can see in his world. And he spends all his time managing himself and, and getting what he wants, trying to get what he wants, and he lives with this level of anxiety and fear because what if he falls short? And this sense of self-importance. That's the first errant view of life, that I'm God. But there's another one. Verse 10. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. They're starting to panic here. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And notice this phrase. This is so huge. And they do not live among men. The second errant view of life is that there is a God, 
but he is distant. See, this is another question that plagues us. And often it drives us back to number one of believing that we are God. We think if God is there, then why does he seem so distant and uncaring in my life? Why would he let these things happen to me? It doesn't seem fair. Why am I left on my own, at least seemingly, to struggle through life by myself? I believe in God. I believe he's up in heaven, but there seems to be some kind of wall. And he's kind of disinterested and separated and looks down at me and just says, well, it's too bad you have to go through that, but you're on your own. And so I have these problems, and I have no place to go with them. There is a God, but he's distant. The reason I think this is so poignant is because if I'm honest with myself, this is very, very often the way I live my life. I don't believe this. I don't believe he's distant, but I live like that. Because when I have a problem or a struggle or something going on in my life, too often, instead of going to God with it, I endlessly worry about it, or I try to solve it on my own, try to be in control, where I manipulate a situation so that I can get what I think I need or want. I'll push or coerce. I'll force the issue. I'll lose sleep so that I can kind of get what I need out of something. I live too often like there is a God, but he's distant. That's not the right way to look at life. There's a third way, and it's the right way to look through life. Look at verse 12. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Again, very reasonable guy. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom intact. He asked the king's officer, why did this king issue such a harsh decree? So they just show up at Daniel's house, you're going to die? Okay, can I find out why? Um, Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are going to become known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel lived with this third uh, level of understanding of the world, this right view of life, and that is this. There is a God, and he is close, and he cares. Or as the song that we sang earlier says, he is our friend. He walks with us. He's close with us. He is our friend. Continue with the story, verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then he sings this amazing song of praise. We're going to come back to that later. Verse 24. Then Daniel, I love this. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. Now notice what happens. Verse 25. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what this dream means. Daniel went to him. But then he goes to the king and says, I have found a man. This is what you call spin control. Um, He knows who he's dealing with. He knows this is a guy who's ruthless and tyrannical. He also knows he's a guy who's going to value people he can count on to get things done. And so even though Daniel went to him, he goes, I found a man among the exiles. Nobody else thought to look among the Jewish people. I thought to look there. I'm the guy you can count on. I want you to see how even this guy lives at this level that that I have to live in control of my life. I have to spin things and manipulate things and course things so my career path will go the way it's supposed to be. Contrast that with this guy Daniel and the humility the way he lives. Verse 26, the king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Notice his humility. Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. Can I I tell you? No, I can't. I can't. But there is a God in heaven. Note that phrase. I'm going to come back to that. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. Everybody's living, kind of trying to control their own situation, their own destiny, and Daniel's like, it's not up to me. It's a God thing. I, I can do it only as a servant of God. And so here's the vision he has. I'm going to summarize it, but we have a picture to show you. He has this dream of this huge, enormous, dazzling statue uh, that he describes as awesome in appearance. The head of, is in gold, the chest and arms silver, the belly and thighs bronze, legs iron, feet iron and clay. He says, while you're watching this statue, there's this huge rock that's cut out of a mountain. But he makes this statement, it's not cut out by human hands. He says, then the rock comes down, it hits the statue on the feet and smashes it. The, the statue collapses, the whole thing shatters into pieces and blows away like chaff in the wind without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue becomes this huge mountain and fills the whole earth. That's the dream he has. Verse 36, he says, this was the dream. And he says, now we will interpret the dream, uh, interpret it to the king. The implication is he's talking about the three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you see the humility again? He's sharing credit. We'll do this together. You, O king, are the king of kings. That statement basically means, um, you're, you know, there's lots of these city-states. There's lots of little cities that are ruled by little kings, but they're lesser kings. You're the king that rules them all. You're the empire king. You're the king of kings. And here's that phrase again. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and, and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. I mean, you're not just like a regular king. You're king over not only the people, you're king over like the kitty cats and the birdies. That's pretty significant. Uh, wherever you live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. That's pretty significant. You're the head of gold. You're the head, which is the top, but you're also gold, the purest and the most uh, precious of the metals in that. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one out of bronze, which will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break the others. Just as you saw, the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet will, it will have some strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly of iron and partly of clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Now the word kingdom can also be translated king. A lot of people like to speculate, is this talking about Persia and Greece and Rome? And it very likely may be, but I don't think that's the point. I don't think we're supposed to extrapolate and kind of guess which kingdom is who, because Daniel really doesn't go there at all. Here's the point of this whole dream, verse 44. In the time of those kings, here it is again, that phrase, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Daniel, I mean, is an amazingly bold guy. He says, you're the head of gold, you're the king of gold, you're the king of kings, but your kingdom is not going to last forever. Even though everybody comes to you and says, O king, live forever, it's not going to last forever. In fact, it's not even going to be remembered, it's going to be forgotten, but there's there's a God in heaven who's going who's to have this eternal kingdom that he's building. Very bold, because he could be killed for saying that to this king. Daniel's this amazing guy. He does not live under the illusion that he is God, that he is in control. Nor does he live under the illusion that God is uh, up there in heaven, but he's uncaring and he's distant. He believes there is a God, and he is close, and he is there to help, and he wants to relate with us and walk with us. So there's no need to worry or push or coerce or fret or, or lose sleep or be anxious. He can just trust in that God. For the last few minutes this morning, I want to talk about some implications of our lives 
if we really live that God is God and you and I are not, but God is our friend. Some implications to living that way. First implication is this. We can live in peace and courage and confidence and joy. In other words, we can begin to live like Daniel lived. Daniel saw the earth. Daniel saw his place on the earth. And he saw, I don't have to wrangle. And I don't have to feel like I'm in control. And I don't have to, you know, push or coerce or whatever. Because in heaven is a really big God. And he's watching over all this stuff. And it's no sweat for him to be in control over all of it. So I'm just going to let him do it, and I'm going to rest in him. And I know that he longs to have a direct and intimate relationship with me. And so I don't have to be God, because I have God with me. He's my friend. So I don't have any need to do any promoting of myself or spinning or endlessly seeking credit, because God sees and God knows. And it makes no difference if I'm a foreign slave, taken out of my homeland, my hopes and dreams for my life dashed, like Daniel, or if I'm an all-powerful king of kings like Nebuchadnezzar. It really doesn't matter what my role in life is because I'm not God, but I know God and He's my friend. And that enables us to live a life of humility instead of a life of self-preoccupation. Live a life of confidence instead of a life of inadequacy. A life of courage instead of fear. A life of peace instead of anxiety. A life of joy instead of chronic disappointment. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to live that way. I'd like to live that way as a parent. Not feeling like I have to drive my kids all over the world to get involved in every sport and every possible kind of activity so they have a well-rounded childhood because if somehow I miss out on one single thing, they're destined to a life of failure because it's not all up to me. I'm not in control. But God loves them and He's their friend and He has a plan for their life and I can trust them with Him. And I don't have to cut corners at work or try to do, you know, spin control so I get credit for things I didn't do so my career can advance the way I think it needs to advance. Because it's not all up to me. I'm not in control. But there is a God who's in control. And I'm his friend. And I don't have to get on that treadmill of endlessly seeking more success and more stuff so I can have the right car and the right kind of house and the right kind of clothes and take the right vacations. Not that there's anything wrong with stuff, but it's just stuff. It doesn't really matter. And I don't need to boost my self-esteem by having the right kind of stuff because it's not about that and it's not about me. I'm not in control. But I I know a God who is. And I don't need to coerce and force and manipulate the relationships in my life so I get all my needs met because it's not about getting my needs met because it's not about me. Because I'm not God. But I know God. And He's my friend. You know, life would just be so much less work if we just learned to live like Daniel lived. Second implication, that God is God and you and I are not, but he is our friend, is I'm free to devote myself to help others encounter God. I love this about Daniel. Daniel really, really wants Nebuchadnezzar to discover who the real God is. And so, when Daniel becomes clear that he's not God, and that he's lost without God, He can devote himself to help others encounter this same God, this God of love and grace. So what appears to be a dashing of all the plans and hopes and dreams of Daniel's life by being taken as a slave to a foreign country really turns out to be the evangelistic opportunity of a lifetime. Now he has the opportunity to influence the most powerful people in the world, their values, their decisions, and their faith. 
a couple clues that this is the way Daniel is thinking. First clue is that the very first chapter of Daniel is written in Hebrew, which is the, the language of the Jewish people and what the, basically the, most of the rest of the Old Testament is written in. But cha- chapters 2 through 7 of Daniel are written in Aramaic. I pointed out Aramaic earlier. Now that's weird if you think about it. You don't go to Barnes & Noble and buy a book and the first couple chapters are in English and the rest of it's in French. That's not normal. So why is that? Why would he, the writer do that? Aramaic was the most common language of the Middle Eastern world in that day. It was the common language of Babylon. I think in a, in a really in a clear way, the writer of Daniel is trying to say, this is not just a Jewish story, and this is not just a Jewish God. This is the God of all people, of all times, and this is a God for you too. The second clue, I think it's even a more clear clue, is that, and I, I point out the phrase several times, Daniel uses the phrase, the God of heaven, to describe God. The God of heaven. Several times. He doesn't say Yahweh. He doesn't say Jehovah. He doesn't say um, Elohim. He doesn't say Adonai, which are the Hebrew, the Jewish names for God. In fact, the God of heaven was a Babylonian name for God. The Babylonians believed in lots of gods. They had a pantheon, many, many gods. But they believed that there was like one God that was like the head God. He was like the supervisory God, and they called him the God of heaven. It's actually a Babylonian term for God. So Daniel is saying, you know the God that you worship, that Babylonian God, that you think he's far off and distant, he's the head God over all the gods? I know him, and he's not distant. I walk with him. Let me tell you more about him. He's not just a Hebrew God. He's just as much a Babylonian God as he is a Hebrew God. He is for you as much as he is for me. He's for all of us. See, I think too often... We turn people off to faith, not because they are struggling with Christianity or the person of Christ or who God is, but really because we've thrown in lots of other baggage with it. We try to get people to convert to our values and our ideas and our customs within the church as opposed to just introducing them to who God is. Uh, Where I went to college, at Ozark Christian College, there were some uh, missionaries that went on a mission trip for an entire summer to a place called Papua New Guinea, which is a um, in the South Pacific, it's a very primitive culture, very tribal, and they were going to try to take the, the um, Bible there, la- translate it in their own language, and, and start a church there. And so they were ministering in this very, very primitive culture, the kind of culture where you see on like National Geographic where the men are wearing loincloths and you know all kinds of piercings and tattoos. It's a very primitive culture. And... Uh, as they came back, they were showing slides from their trip there. And they were, all of, as you can imagine, in that kind of culture, all of the, the women from that culture are topless. They don't wear any shirts in that culture. And there was a, apparently some people in the chapel service that were offended by this and thought, the, well, one of the ways that we as Christians in America could best serve this culture would be to pack up all of the really bad-selling T-shirts and sweatshirts from the college bookstore and send it over to them so they could be properly attired. And so they, we, they sent all these over there, and then a mission group went the vol- following summer to spend the summer there, and they came back for, with slides from their trip, and they put the slides on the screen. And this is one of those classic moments if you're a college student. They started showing the slides, and all the women were wearing the shirts, but they had cut circular holes here so that their <laughs> breasts could be out so they could still nurse, they could still breastfeed, which is a little more offensive even than just having them walk around with anything on But see, too often we're so obsessed with kind of converting people to our ideas and our culture, kind of the little white, you know, church thing, as opposed to just having them introduced to the God that they kind of already know is there, they just don't know him well enough. In the New Testament, a guy named Paul does the same thing. In the book of Acts, he goes to a place called Athens, city, not Athens, Illinois, Athens, the original one, it's still there. 
and the ancient city, and uh, there were idols everywhere. And rather than yell at them and say, oh, you guys are missing out and you're lost, you got all these false gods, he affirms them. He says, I can see that you're very religious people. And he says, I, I saw this one idol. It was an idol to an unknown God. He said, let me tell you about that God. You already worship him. You just don't know much about him, but let me tell you more about him. In that God, you live and you move and you have your being, meaning he's all around you all the time. You just got to learn to open your eyes and see his presence. I hear people talk about, you know, we have to bring Jesus to this person. I'm going to introduce Jesus to that person. Well, maybe it's not as much introducing them as much as just helping people open their eyes and see he's been with them all along, but that they can have a relationship with him. Nebuchadnezzar is told, you know, you're the king of kings. And you're the head of gold, but there is a God, the true God, that's going to last forever. His kingdom is going to last forever, and it will outlast you. Very bold thing to say and do. But he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to begin to encounter who this God was. Now, he's not converted at this point. Um, you're going to kind of see his story and later on. He's going to respond very positively. But he's still going to be involved in lots of other gods and still going to be violent and tyrannical. But he begins his journey toward God. The third implication that God is God, and you and I are not, but he's our friend, is I'm free to let go of worry. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, uh, and I also don't want to heap kind of pressure on people, because if you're like me, and you do worry sometimes, and then somebody says you need to let go of worry, then you know you're supposed to, and you feel bad, and so you worry about your worrying, and that's not what I want to have happen. But let me just say this. When you become clear that you are not God, uh, then you don't have to worry so much about carrying the world on your shoulders, because your shoulders aren't big enough anyway. But if you can kind of be like Daniel and say, you know, there's a God up there and his shoulders are plenty big enough. And even though Daniel was a slave in a foreign country and he could meet his death at any moment just by pointing, by Nebuchadnezzar pointing, saying, you're done. He just is, lives with a level of confidence without anxiety or worry that he is in competent hands. He just seems to have no fear. Verse 46, the rest of the story goes like this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid, honor and, uh, paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Then the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods. He is the God of heaven. He's over all of them. And Lord of kings. That's a strong statement. I'm the king of kings, but he's Lord of kings. He's even over me. He's got something that I don't have. And a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Again, he's not converted, but he's begun his journey toward God. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him rule over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, and again, here's the humility, sharing credit. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as administrators over the province of Babylon. So he shares his authority, his power. Well, Daniel himself remained in the royal court. See, part of the message of Daniel is that we're all going to end up in Babylon, those places in life where life has not turned out the way we planned. It's just the way it is. That's the way life is. But if we try to get out of those times by manipulating and controlling and thinking, and the, you know, it's all up to us, we're going to seek deeper and deeper into it. That it's not about me, and it's not about you, and it's not about Daniel, or Nebuchadnezzar, or Babylon, or Persia, or Greece, or Rome, or the English Empire of the 18th and 19th centuries, or the Third Reich, or the Soviet Union, or communism, or even America. Empires come, empires go, nations come, nations go, leaders come, and leaders go. But Daniel says there's a rock. There's a rock that's the kingdom of God, and it's sustained by the God of gods, the Lord of kings. And it will last forever. And if you're a part of that, then you just don't have to worry so much. And this kingdom was not begun by an all-powerful despot, but by a poor little baby 
who had an anonymous birth in a tiny little town, was raised in a backwater village in an unknown part of the world, and grew up to be one of tens of thousands of anonymous people crucified by Rome, and he had a a dozen or so followers. But because of him and his life, this universal thing called the church was born, spreading over two millennia, covering every continent and every culture, and still growing. And Daniel says, if you're part of that kingdom, you don't need to worry that much. It's interesting that Daniel, he sings that song of praise I mentioned way earlier in this story, not at the end. If it was me, I'd do it at the end. And now everything's turned out, your life has been spared, not only been spared, you've been promoted, you've now got the right, you're the right-hand guy of the king, you've got his ear, you're influencing him, you're living in the palace. I mean, you know, now everything's turned out. Now you sing the song of praise, right? No. Interesting, interesting that Daniel sings it way earlier in the story. See, Daniel knows God is God and he is not, but he's his friend, and so he can trust him. So even in the midst of the story where things don't look very good, and I don't know about you, but in the middle of my story, I have problems, and you probably do too. And I can't see the end, and neither can you. But in the midst of Daniel's story, even facing death, that's where he sung a praise. Because he knew he wasn't God. He wasn't in control, but he knew, he knew there was a God who was in control, And he had that God as his friend. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, again, thank you for Daniel's life and uh, his example of how to really live life right. Though last week we talked about kind of going through the depths of those Babylon experiences that we all go through and that touched a lot of our hearts. This one probably touches even deeper into our values and how we live. Because probably the greatest obstacle we have of living life to its fullest and living life with you is our need to be in control, our need to manage our own life. If we could only learn to live like Daniel and just learn to give that up. Not that we don't try, not that we don't work hard, not that we don't try to parent and do our best, all those kinds of things, but realize it's just not up to us that you are in control, that you are God, that we are not, but that we can walk through life with you as our friend. Thank you that you are God who walks with us as our friend and that you will guide us and we don't need to worry. We don't need to manipulate our course because we're safe with you. God, I also ask that you would help us be on the lookout as we walk through life for people who need to encounter you. That we wouldn't try to kind of force them or convert them to certain ideas or cultural baggage that just isn't really important. That we would just hopefully help them see, not even introduce you to them, but help them see what they already deep down know at a soulish level, that there is a God, but that he's not distant. He's around them, he's with them, and they just need to open their eyes and see, learn to see you next to them. And that you invite them into relationship with you. That give us eyes to see those opportunities as we walk through our week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I am a friend of God. But I don't think, unlike our hero Daniel, that I have ever, in the middle of my Babylon, have ever thought about singing a song of praise. But I'm learning to do that more and more because I believe that the God who is the God of my middle time, the God of my crisis, will not only take me to the middle, but he will take me to the end. 
I don't know where you might be in your crisis or your Babylon, whether you are in the beginning of it, the middle of it, or coming out the other end of it, but I wonder if you would have the courage to join me in reading this wonderful song of praise. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and acknowledges the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. holding up the moon Who is peeling back the darkness With the burning light of noon Who is standing on the mountains Who is on the earth below Who is bigger than the heavens And the lover of my soul. Creator God, he is Yahweh. The great I am, he is Yahweh. The Lord of all, he is Yahweh. Rose of Sharon, he is Yahweh. The righteous son, he is Yahweh. The three in one, he is Yahweh. makes me happy Who is he that gives me peace Who is he that brings me comfort And turns the bitter into sweet Who is stirring up my passion Who is rising up in me Who is filling up my hunger With everything I need Creator God, He is Yahweh The great I am, He is Yahweh The Lord of all, He is Yahweh Rose of Sharon, He is Yahweh The righteous Son, He is Yahweh the three in one, he is Yahweh. You are holy and eternal, and forever you will reign. 
Every knee will bow before you, every tongue will confess your name. All the angels give you glory as they stand before your throne. Here on earth we gather to declare your name creator God, that you are the great I am, that you are Lord of all. May we be people, Lord, that uh, help others to encounter you, Father, as uh, we walk through Babylon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Have a great Sunday.